Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. major component of financial freedom is lowering expenses, and today we tackle one of the categories of expenses that seems <laughs> probably the most difficult to do anything about, which is taxation, with a special focus on local taxation. My guest is Paul Doerr from RollbackLocalGov.com. And Paul, um, I have often wondered if there's any way to actually affect taxes. But when I started, when I found your website some months ago, I started to realize, well, if there is a way, probably the way that you're doing it is the way is the way we should go about it. So, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. <laughs> I'm glad to be with you, Joshua, and I, I'm, I'm hoping that we're doing just that. Well, we are doing that in, in many states, and. Uh, Trying to give people a set of tools on how to do this on a continual basis in their local governments. There are lots of things that we just haven't done over the years. We let them run over the top of us from from all the the PR campaigns, <clears throat> all the phony needs, and all the rest of it, uh, guilt trips, etc., and leaving us leaving us somewhat exposed to just r- r- rapidly exploding taxes at, at the local level. So. Uh, I spent some time um, studying it, analyzing it. I'm a former banker, former bank analyst. I got disgusted with the whole monetary system, but I used those same tools to start looking at local government, and it's it's been fun. We've we started to really help people at the local level. Well, then on your website, it says that your clients have defeated nearly 80% of their funding proposals that they've gone to. So obviously not 100% victory, but you've racked up some significant victories and, and reined in local government for many clients. Nine states, uh, anywhere from uh, a billion, 1.2 billion, down to five million uh, dollar proposals, uh, and and uh, yeah, nearly 80 percent of them. We can't win them all, uh, but um, we've we're we're mobilizing a, a, a base of apathetic people who've hitherto four have just said kind of given up apathetically and said nothing you can do about it. And they keep coming back. You know what can you do? And well, well there is stuff, and so uh, there is a lot, a lot of good things you can do. And uh, we're we're seem to be pioneering some some processes, but it's again it's a lot of fun. Well, what gives me hope, and it's fitting that we record this on the day after the first um, uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton debate for the presidential <laughs> campaign last night. Uh, but what gives me hope is I've uh, is that it seems like with with what you describe and, and what we're going to talk about today, there are strategies that individual people can actually employ and actually make a difference. And I, I get so utterly overwhelmed at the insanity of national politics that I've completely given up hope that it even matters. Um, but I have a tiny little glimmer of hope about local politics. And so I'm hoping you can, you can fan that flame. So is it possible that you and I as individuals can make a difference in local politics? Yes, it is. It's not only possible, it's very doable. And uh, the thing to remember is that all that corruption at the national level, I, I, I share the same sentiment, by the way. I'm, I've given up on federal stuff because much of the training ground of our Marxist Keynesian system, the people who get into power administratively, judicially, and particularly legislatively, uh, most of them were trained at the local level. They started off as city managers or school uh, uh, personnel or county administrators, uh, those sort of things. So much of what they've uh, perfected at the federal level started back here at the local level. My long-term goal is as we train up a young generation to oppose them at the local level, that they may in fact mature to become uh, the sort of people that would represent us at the state capitals and maybe one day into Washington. But trying to fix our system by starting with Washington – I, I quit that. I came out of federal politics retirement in 2008. I'd given up back in the 90s in 2008 when Ron Paul asked me to work for him uh, for his campaigns in Iowa and South Carolina and Minnesota. So I did work for a while because of the principles that Ron was going to be advocating and got to be in on the early days of that whole explosion. Uh, but I, I became convinced uh, after it was all done that it is the, the battle is at the local level. And yes, the individual can have a lot of impact. 
You wrote an essay on your website called Why I Defeat Government School Bond Levies at the Ballot Box and Do It for a Profit. Uh, softball pitch to you. Why do, why do you choose school bonds as seemingly a primary issue for you to focus on? Uh, the, the Probably the most base reason of all is that they're messing up a whole generation of children, if nothing else. They're messing them up when it comes in terms of how to manage their money. There's a lot of other arguments we can sit here and make, but when it comes to, to managing money, the schools and the examples they set uh, have done a tremendous disharm to children. We have a lot of kids now coming up in this system where all the, the palace of facilities that are available, uh, the, the, all the accoutrements that come with it, and they look at government, they don't have any idea where it comes from, most of the kids, and they grow up in this environment. Uh, then they head off to college, and they're told to you know, get four years of part, party slash education. They get buried in student debts, credit card debts, um, uh, auto debts. By the time they're out of college, they, can, they, don't know, they have no way to get a job. Uh, they, they, uh, many of them are very unemployable. They end up back at home, uh, and they can't start families because uh, the potential spouse is going to be buried the same way. So I focus on the school's because for decades, they've been telling us they've been doing this for the children, and it's a con. It's been for massive contractors, architects, uh, construction managers, vendors of all kinds feed off of the system all in the name of the children. And it's the children who are truly getting hurt by their examples. So I like to go after the schools to say, let's, let's really do something for the kids. Let's teach them how to be better stewards of the assets and the properties that, that, that you already have. Teach them a lesson by example. You have them most of the waking hours of the day anyway, so why not give them good illustrations of managing properties better and not show that these kids, they can go and borrow and spend themselves into uh, bankruptcy because the government is different. They can just keep taxing. When they get in financial trouble, they keep taxing. I just told a client this morning, as I've been telling my clients for years, successful business people make miserable, most often make miserable political clients in these environments when they go up against the schools. Because I, I said, you think like a successful businessman does. I got to maximize my revenue, minimize my expense, uh, 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 build my, my base with the market so that people respect and like my products and services and so forth. And schools do not think that way. So don't approach the schools with a good common sense approach of how to manage the money, if that's your, if that's your opening line, um, the schools will just respond with, yeah, but it's for the kids. And, and uh, so, so business people can't process this. They don't understand, why doesn't this government school superintendent, why doesn't he see this? I said, because he's trained not to. He's trained to spend it as fast as he possibly can and get more. And that's, that's, that's the first mindset that they know this stuff is in Washington and their state capital, but it takes them a while to process it. The very same mindset is right here in your county administrator's office, your city administrator's office, your school administrator's office. It's the same thing. I think I can justify this discussion of, of talking about rolling back local taxes as a uh, in in the context of radical personal finance, especially just given of, of lowering expenses. Uh, but I have to admit, it's it's small on an individual basis for any of us um, in terms of the actual amount of an increase of a school, a school bond and how much that's actually going to increase our local tax. It's more of one of those uh, areas of, of worldview where if you want to make a difference, this is one of those uh, those areas. Uh, but is schooling the, the low-hanging fruit, uh, especially for somebody to be able to make an impact on local government? Or is there something else that's potentially easier and has a bigger uh, bigger effect, especially on our own personal finances? Well, they're all equally low-hanging fruit when the city or the county or the school comes along with some outrageous proposal, some event center, some, some rails program, some, some rail-to-trail thing, something that's going to have no market in use effectively is, is not going to be of any real value to the community. Those are all you know, low-hanging fruit. I mean there's, there's, there's plenty we can do on all these proposals. At, at any at any of these levels, uh, schools just happen to be the most. In, in my experience, they happen to be the ones that are um, issuing the debt and raising the taxes just as fast or faster than any of them. 
Keep in mind that state and local government bonded indebtedness in the year 2000 in this country was right at $1 trillion. It's now touching right up to $4 trillion in 16 years. In 16 years, it's nearly quadrupled. And so the property taxes are going through the roof. And and I would probably differ a little bit with you're minimizing the, the additional increase when people on a typical home and so forth. I get lots of people in, in metros and stuff say, I bought this this home. It was 1200 bucks a year for property taxes. And now I'm paying six, seven, eight thousand $8,000 a year in annual property tax on up. I've seen even much more. In the case of small businesses or people who have a business that has uh, – they need real estate, i.e. farmers and ranchers and so forth, I'm dealing with a client right now uh, that's in, it's in a rural area that, that is looking at a, a $50,000 a year increase in one year for the next 25 years on his land tax if this thing passes. And so if, you're, if your business is real estate heavy, these things are very uh, onerous to your bottom line. But even even in residentials, the, the pain because of this trend the last uh, 16 years, the pain's becoming very real for more and more households. So there's a there's a ready market, and I often tell my clients um, they have all the PR, they have all the local media, they have all the systems in place telling their story how underworked and overpaid and how wore out their facilities are and all this stuff, and so that that, that PR message pounds away in these communities across the nation daily. But the one thing we have going for us is that when people hear all that, and they, they kind of concede it, and then the next day they get their property tax statement or their escrow notice from the bank that's gone up this much more, dramatic increase for, for property taxes. And they're saying, what do they mean underpaid, underfunded? Where is this money going? And and, and so um, it's a – it's a, the – the leverage and the the taxation that's, that's increasing so dramatically is is becoming very very readily available for us to get to the community, and when we start articulating a message up against the propaganda machine that they have, we are, we can relate. People can relate to what we're saying. Yes, this is my household budget. I'm seeing this. I'm feeling it, and and we can get we can get a lot of political support that way. <laughs> It's interesting because I've always wanted to 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 see a politician who would actually take on, um, you know, the education system. It just seems like from left and right, everyone kind of buckles under. It's got to be for the kids. Exactly what you said earlier. It's for the kids. We've got you know we're doing bad, so automatically because we're doing bad, we've got to spend more money. Uh, and it's hard for me to believe that people, in in general, will actually see through that and will actually again on a broad basis will be open to a, a different model. Uh, go ahead. Well, and, and, and the fun part is, is when, when I can take a comprehensive annual financial report, I used to audit banks and so forth. So I can take the CAFRs from a government entity and, um, two things now the GASB, the, the government accounting standards board, as of, uh, June 30th, 2014, now require these local governments to disclose fully what their unfunded pension liability is that none of the local politicians are talking about. They're also requiring them to disclose uh, that they're using this bogus 7.5% interest rate on the actuarial fund. And then they also then they tell them to disclose how much more the liability will be if you're not meeting that target uh, of 7.5%. And then finally, they make them disclose what the, the fund is actually getting. So if they're getting 4% and they're saying they're um, – I looked at one – the other day that said there were um, uh, well there's several I looked at but there's there's one was 240 million dollars unfunded liability in a county in South Carolina but when we got done with the actual interest rate on the fund and took it down to what the market was earning in this district it was 410 million dollars in unfunded liabilities for this one county government and so we we bring this out to the community and we say, look, they're saying the state's going to manage the retirements. They're going to take care of all this. But you talk to state treasurers and they say, that's not on our financial statement. That's on the county's financial statement. We manage the funds, but the liability is theirs. They entered into the employment contracts, the benefits contracts. They have the liability. When the state finally can't come up with the money and, and those checks are coming in, that's when that's when uh, the major tax increases are going to be coming or they're going to have to renegotiate these defined benefit contracts. That's one area. The other area is with with the standard of CAFRs now, a comprehensive annual financial report. 
they're required under the CAFRA standard to put in lots of statistical data in the back end of the audit, the annual audit, and that saves a lot of work for the local taxpayers. I can take their general fund expenses per student, for example, if it's a, if it's a school, and I can go back 10 years and say, here's where it was back then. Here's If it grew by the CPI um, adjusted for the type of, of demographics you are, and, and they grew that, that general fund expense for that school district by the CPI per student uh, for the last 10 years, here's where they would be. We sh- and we show this in a graph, a colorful graph. And then we show the actual spending, and it's often double. It's way above, way above. And I have taxpayers look at that, and they say, they've been telling us how underfunded they've been for all these years. This is outrageous. There, there's a... There's a PR gimmick that's been going on for decades covering for these people, and often we get a shell shock. People can't quite believe what we revealed to them uh, when they first see it. That's why we have we have here's the here's here's the link. Go look at the financial statement yourself. Uh, here's where we get the CPI, et cetera. And that's where we start to get people's attention because now all of a sudden, the reality of from their own financial statement starts to parallel their own business tax rates or their own household tax increases. Now it starts to make sense. And that's where you can start to cast real doubt uh, upon the uh, do-it-for-the-kids idea. Paul, my selfish reason for interviewing on Radical Personal Finance is I want your free consulting services. And I'm just letting my audience <laughs> listen in <laughs> for their benefit. Happens all the time. <laughs> so here's the situation. Um, I look at my local government, and I'm not politically active uh, very much on a local basis for a reason I'll get to in a minute. Well, I mean, the reason is, is I just – feel a little bit hopeless. Um, but I'm considering areas of more of increasing political involvement, especially for two things. Number one is my schedule. Uh, I'm working to get my schedule more opened up in the coming years. Uh, and also with my children. Uh, I have two young children. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so they're a little bit young. But I intend to be very involved in the home education community here locally. And when I look at home-educated students, I kind of see this army of 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 this like vast underutilized army of students who are uh, intelligent, uh, who are well-read, uh, who can be um, helped and who can be guided. And I look at a local political um, establishment and I just think, if I can work and organize some of the local home education students and we put in a few hours of week into working to keep the local community accountable and keep the local politicians accountable, I mean, I've got huge ideas of what of what could be done. And I've studied some of the local uh, political watchdog groups around the country to see kind of what they're doing. And so over the next decade or two, I, I kind of have this little dream that possibly I'll be able to affect something here in my local area. So that's the, the background. Uh, and, and the consulting question for you is this. If you were talking to somebody like me saying, I'm looking at my local um, system and I want to make a change. I want to pull back costs. I want to roll back the local government. What would be my first steps? How would I analyze the problem? And what would I go about actually doing in order to start to lay the groundwork for uh, a political movement? First thing I would do is is connect up with someone who's a financial analyst who can who can crunch accounting statements and so forth and build yourself a, a knowledge base of what these governments have been doing for the last 10 or 15 years. Get to understand their trends, where they're going, what's happening. Always doing linear trends over time starts to focus. You can start to see here's the ones that are really out of control. Here's here's the here's the, the low-hanging fruit. Here's the target we can start with. Second of all, if you show up out of nowhere and you show up at public budget hearings and say, you guys are spending excessively and blah, 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 and they're going to say, who are you? You know, okay, thank you very much. See you later. Um, <clears throat> the way – you prepare yourself by analyzing and studying and seeing where they're at and uh, keeping press clips, t- t- um, um, links of news sites, stories of promises of we're going to watch our costs and all these things. Start building a file of collecting this stuff so you can you can demonstrate to people three years later, two years later, ten years later. They promised us when they passed this tax they would never do this, and here they're doing it. And so build, build a data file. Uh, keep – Keep clips, keep links, the various stories. Uh, start analyzing the financials of the districts. Watch them each year when they update and so forth. 
And I, and I, I gave a workshop here in, in, in Texas a while back, and I stood in front of some homeschool kids, and I said, go get some training at the community college or the state university in Keynesian economics and finance. Don't believe the crap. Just understand how they work. Get these kids to, to look at uh, – and, and also in finance. Uh, understand the math and the nature of finance uh, and so forth. Don't buy into all the debt and leverage and all that stuff. But understand the nature of how these systems work so that when the time comes, you can then engage them with knowledge and understanding. Um, and then with, with that said, I think one of the most underutilized, and I make a claim, misdirected uh, army in this country has been the homeschool movement. I think a, a, a poor eschatology, if you will, uh, a poor view of Christ's kingdom and, and kingdom advancement and uh, engaging the system uh, has been prospered for a long time. And I have many, many homeschool families that could do so many powerful things in their communities. And they sit in the sidelines convinced that we, no, we don't want to upset them. And we, we don't, we, we're there to, Romans 13 says to obey the civil authorities and, and yada, yada. And they won't engage. The flip side is, when I have a family, a father who gets it, like I have in Coles County, Illinois, father of nine homeschooled children, and they and they understand the money system, they understand the, the debt system, the central banking system, and they've trained their children accordingly. When it comes time to take on the system, I, I've never seen a more powerful tool than this family in Coles County, Illinois. And and to the point that the, the homeschool boys will be so emboldened that when they're holding an informational meeting at the public high school, why this new tax, why this new spending proposal is so needed, those boys will stand out in front of the front doors as homeschool boys and passing out flyers uh, showing the offset and why they should vote no to everybody going into the school's meetings. And and they will go up and down the streets. They'll pass out flyers door to door. They'll say, we'll be back in a half an hour. If you like a yard sign, just give us a thumbs up. They'll go, they'll go six, eight, ten blocks down the street. And you got a 16, 17, 18-year-old boys doing this. And they're, 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 all of a sudden, the community is getting introduced to homeschool kids. Uh, they're polite kids, they're polite, intelligent young men, you know, standing on my porch or at, at the back door. And and they hand out a one-page flyer. Uh, and at the very bottom, it says, if you like, yard sign will stop, stop back in a few minutes. They'll double back and they'll go right back down the street again. And they'll put every second or third property, they'll put up a, a, a nose sign. They're, that's just the beginning of what a homeschool army of young people could do, and they then get to see the corruption with their own eyes as they're engaged in the fight. Uh, they, they get to see a whole lot, and, and then as young people, it doubles down their resolve as to why they need to engage. And um, <clears throat> so um, start by analyzing what what's going on. Get to their CAFRs. You go to the local government agency and you look at the departments, you look at finance and you look at audits and you find the CAFRs. Uh, and and from there, look at those and the unfunded pension liabilities and start building a knowledge base. You're leading up to the point when you have a knowledge base, the way you gain credibility in the community is when they then call for some voter-approved funding levy or a bond they need to issue, or something that your state statutes require them, a vote of the people, then you you arrive on the scene and you engage them and you run a campaign. And, and if you win or give them a good, healthy fight, all of a sudden you went from a nobody out in the wilderness, you now have political credibility that people see your professional message, your professional approach, uh, your what I call gracious aggressiveness, uh, we're very kind, but we're very bold. We don't we don't back down. And uh, when you when you when you tie the two together, all of a sudden people in the community are saying, "Who are you people? Where did they come from?" Now you got the seed foundation for a growing movement. Do you so you you spend most of the research time doing that privately and just compiling your own files, and and then only after you pick a battle, whether it's a bond issue or whether it's an election or if there's a, a an amendment of some kind, only after you pick a battle uh, that you decided is going to be your initial battle, do you go public? Is that what you're recommending? Yes, yes, because um, I, I, if they want, if you want the experience to go to the public hearings on the budget and testify and so forth, all these tax groups have done this for years. And it gets a little news in the paper, and then they go ahead and do what they're going to do, and and it goes on. 
And initially, when I started all this, some of the strongest opposition was from the local tax watch groups. Oh, we've tried all that. You can't do that. You know, you can, you know, we know what they're doing. We you you can't stop that. And I said, oh, really? Okay, well, thanks anyway. And I've had I've had some places where the uh, one of them at the time, 10, 15 years ago, Douglas County, Nebraska, in Omaha, the head of the Douglas County Tax Watch Group was a state employee. And and I, I get I get very nervous when I see government employees running the local tax watch groups. Not that they can't be concerned, but most often their loyalties are to the system. And so I have not had a lot of good experience. I'm, they're out there, I'm sure. Uh, but a lot of them will not engage on the political side when it comes time to fight them. So uh, building the base and then going to their hearings and testifying and so forth, that'll be good experience. They're not going to listen to you. The only time they're going to listen to you is when they know that you can deliver the political punch to stop them. I'd at love that to, point, at that point, they'll, they'll start to respect you. I'd love to hear some more stories. You mentioned that family that you're connected with in Illinois. Share with me some other uh, victory stories. Uh, your own family. I know your 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 sons were recently involved in Missouri uh, with a significant political move there. Share with us some more stories of victory. Uh. <laughs> I don't like to see like I'm boasting, but um, we, 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 we believe this. My wife and I have believed this vision for 25 years, and, and um, we kind of went out in the wilderness to train up a generation of kids in our family. We've been blessed with 11 children, and, and uh, uh, my wife back in 1982 uh, won the National Newspaper Association's first prize award in spot news category um, for the weekly editions, and I think there were 750 papers nationwide that were entered and she won first prize uh, in this category and the day she was supposed to be walking across the stage in phoenix arizona and receive her award she was bearing our second son into the world who was now down in missouri here recently and she decided to set aside her career and teach our children uh, home educate our children but and, and i handled bible and math and so forth but she handles the writing and she's taught our children how to write very well and they're now using those skills out into the world, um, politically, within their churches, you know, culturally, wherever. And uh, our children, we have seven of our 11 are now married. We have our 20th grandchild that we just heard last week is on the way. And uh, they're all being homeschooled and taught the same faith we hold to, a very uh, optimistic, forward-looking uh, eschatology, a kingdom-advancing eschatology. And uh, so we've taught our kids when our youngest was – when our – oldest was 12 and our second oldest was 10, they got to get arrested the first time with their dad sitting in front of an abortion clinic. I'm an old Operation Rescue activist as well. And so they got to spend a weekend in juvenile detention and uh, (laughs) come out and and, uh, with great big wide eyes, but all of a sudden, you know, the system doesn't frighten you near so much. Uh, Been there, done that sort of thing. So they've, they've, uh, they grew up leaflet dropping, um, uh, uh, publicly protesting, picketing, um, wickedness at every level, institutionally, government, and even churches and, and colleges. Uh, and so training your children, uh, people have asked me that many times, how'd you do this? And I said, take them street side when they're little. Stand for righteousness, stand for Christ, stand against the darkness, whatever it is, um, and do it and let your children watch as you have to contend for what's Against what's wrong and and for what's for what's right, and um, uh, so you know along the way it's um, I've had I've had a campaign one in in a town of a small town of twenty five thousand uh, here here in the Midwest. The the committee was five men, two of them retired businessmen, the other three were active businessmen. The first time I've ever had an all man committee, and um, they took on. Uh, the, the entire establishment, even the, re- the Republican state senator was coming out for this $5 million a year new tax uh, on top of what all the rest of they're paying. They also took on a, a local banker uh, who owned a, a bank that's um, worth about a billion and a half dollars. They took on the daily paper, the weekly paper, the weekly radio station. They took on the Chamber of Commerce, the economic development. Everybody opposed them. The entire system was against them. And these five men stood firm, and they worked with me, and we took on the fight. And uh, in the end, not only did we defeat them, we handed them like a 69% no vote. 
And um, after it was all done, I never had one of these before, but the committee called the committee chairman called up and said, two nights from now, we're going to hold a victory party. We'd like you to drive back down. We'll buy your gas. Come on down. Okay, I'll come. Never done one before. I walk in the room a couple minutes late. There's probably 85 people there around banquet tables. And I walk in, they all stand up and start applauding. And I said, sit down, sit down right now. Sit down. I said, after tonight, I'm out of here. This is your town. These five men sitting down here in front, they're going to take the hits. If there's going to be any hits in this community, they're going to take the hits. But I said, on top of that, to the extent that you appreciated my passion, my skill, my intellect, my communication abilities, and so forth, I'll be real blunt with you. I give complete honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ for that. Apart from him, I would not have the courage or the skill or the ability to do what I do. And I said, on top of that, I then turned to the old folks and I said, all you hoary heads sitting there in the audience, you white hairs, the Bible refers to that hoary head as a term of endearment and respect. I said, you're all thinking about the legacy you're going to leave behind. You're going to leave a legacy of cash and property and, and large assets and estates here because I, I know a lot of you. I said, think of another legacy. Think of a legacy of repentance that you sat by so silently for so long. You watched the culture. You watched the political system. You watched your church and families unravel. You know what your parents and grandparents, what their culture and civilization was like. And you know what we've all sat by and let happen. Leave this legacy Stand up in front of your family, your spouse, in your church and repent. I've been quiet too long. Sins and crimes by government at all levels have been going on in, with our own families. And start speaking out. Stand up and say no. And say, this is the, the right way. Go this direction. And I said, let them 25 years after you're buried in, in the dirt, let them sit around at family reunions and say, my goodness, uh, whatever happened to grandpa those last 10 years? Did he, did he, was he a changed man? said, so that's a legacy you want to leave behind. And the crowd was very, very, very silent. But it's doable. It's there for us to do if we have the courage. The number one issue I deal with is courage. I can sell skill, talent, access, a professional message, everything. But if I don't have local courage, and that comes from faith, if the courage is not there, my clients will lose. That's where that 20% of my losses. Uh, most of them will be the first to admit it comes from their own lack of courage to fully engage the system. How do you how do you develop courage? Because uh, practice. <laughs> Start small. Start small, and and just just build it. It doesn't come suddenly, but if we don't start, uh, it, it it'll never come. The very first time I tell this to my sons for years, and my daughters. The very first time I was driving to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to lead an operation rescue effort, I knew a lot of people were going to come, and I was the point man. I was the leader. I was the one who called them out and called them to be there. And I knew that I was going to be getting arrested and be hauled off to jail and all the rest of it. I stopped three times at, at, at convenience stores on the way to Sioux Falls to stop and use the bathroom. And uh, every time I was like, uh, my flesh, my, my whole body said, don't do this. You're crazy. What are you doing? You're going to get in trouble. Uh, and my spirit was right with God, at peace with God. And I said, well, what, where am I wrong? There's, what's wrong here? They're going to kill babies. I got to go. And I went. I'd already done it once in Atlanta, Georgia. and I spent a weekend in the Fulton County prison farm. So I kind of had a little idea of what jail time was like. But um, it all comes with little bits of practice. And I'll say this, too, that if you're, if you're involved in a Christian church, uh, and your elders and pastors and leadership in your church have not ever done anything like this, they're going to soon not like you because your courage is going to reflect implicitly back upon them. And so I, I have to I caution people a lot, you know, get ready that if you start taking these, start standing up, that's where um, the Eliabs or the Eliabs in 1 Samuel 17, when David was heading down, to look and looking at Goliath and look at the army and, and you know paraphrasing here, he said, you know, who is this blasphemer standing here before the the God of the, the army is the living God? And his brother uh, Eliab looks at him and says, Oh, I know you, David. You're down here to come see the whole thing, and and you're here you're here abandoning Dad's sheep. You know what are you doing here? The the accusation was you know vanity and irresponsibility. And get ready, within Christian civilization, once you start standing up against this stuff, um, you'll get a lot of the Iliabs who will have the same accusation against you. And David's response is, 
is there not a cause? I think it's in 1 Samuel 26 or 27, uh, 1, 1 Samuel 17, verse 27, somewhere in that area. He's pointing to this, this giant who's blaspheming our living God, and he's saying, is there not a cause? How much do we have to put up with this? And and um, so there's there's a lot of a lot of your culture and community, and, and I'll, I'll be real blunt about how I've been able to do this for 25 years. If my wife was not dedicated to this vision and understanding what we're called to do and supported me through this, I'd have been out of this a long time ago. Um, a man has to sit down and, and have this talk and share this vision and get his spouse on board. She's going to be completely on board. She's going to be frightened, and she, she's going to see things along the way. But in time, she starts to see the blessings that are very, very real. And uh, in time, they will build up their courage as well. But I've seen too many people head on off into the fight and leave their spouse behind, figuratively speaking, not abandon them, but not engage the vision with them. And pretty soon there's real tension. And those people often get taken out and come, you know, that that's it. We're done. I got to keep peace in the home. Right. So it's, it's – um, uh, it takes practice. It takes a biblical understanding. It takes a vision, and it takes a spouse that says, "I will stand with you." And uh, God blessed me with all of those. And uh, apart from any one of them, I would have been—I would have been out of this a long time ago. It's- now, now today, the you know the the school administrator associations hold workshops in Minnesota and Iowa, and I think in Nebraska and various states. You know, one of them uh, some years ago in Minnesota was called the the public finance election and the Paul Dor factor. Get ready to get, de- get defeated. <laughs> so, and, and I, I hear from retired school board members who come from who who just retired and stepped down. this. I got to call you. I've been to state school board conferences and so forth. And, oh, do they hate you with a pure passion? They 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 are afraid of you. They are well. In fact, in two thousand and seven. I was in a radio studio with some guests on behalf of Ron Paul over in eastern Iowa, and the phone rang, and it was a reporter from WCCO, the largest media outlet in Minnesota. It's the, the CBS affiliate. And she said, Mr. Doerr, she said, I'd, I'd like to, to talk to you. She said, I'm attending a conference today with the, the, the Twin Cities, the Metro School Superintendents Association is having a meeting. It's about the, the crisis in public funding of public education. I said, okay, so why are you calling me? And she said, well, the first hour and a half of the session was devoted to you. <laughs> I said, me? I said, what are you talking about? And she said, they're angry with you. They are, they're afraid of you. And I said, I said, how do you respond to that? And I said, afraid of me? I said, ma'am, put this in perspective. I said, they're a 150-year-old enterprise, multi-billion dollar enterprise. They have unions and vendors galore feeding at their trough. They have political power beyond all measure. The legislature gives them whatever they want, however they want. The courts of Minnesota rule on their behalf on a regular basis. You folks in the media are just a house organ. You tell their story in a positive note all the time. And I said, all of that system is up against a guy who has a remodeled garage for an office up against a cornfield in Nowheresville, Iowa. And I said, you're telling me I'm their number one fear? And she's paused and she said, well, yeah, when you put it that way. I said, I know what it is, though. She said, well, what is it? And I said, I'll be real blunt with you. It's the taxpayers. They're pissed off. They've had enough. And I said, all I do is I help bring voice to their anger. Can I quote you on that? And I said, you bet you can. I can guarantee you the editor there in the newsroom will, will nix it. He will, not let, he will not let you use that quote. You're right. He won't. <laughs> so <laughs> and it never, never, and it never went on the air. You stole um, the next question out of my mouth. What is it about you or, or your message or your methodology? What is it that makes you successful? You know, being David going up against Goliath. Empathy, understanding of how much people are are hurting, but by this system, uh, uh, looking at it, since I was a boy. I always, I, I could never stand the bullies in the playground. I could never, I could never countenance, you know, and, and I, I pick many fights with bullies. Um, uh, I walk up to them and, and say, enough, you know, you're done picking on this kid or whatever. And um, they'd say, what are you going to do about it? I said, well, I understand as a Christian that I can't take the first punch. So you hit me first so I can take care of the rest of this. <laughs> and uh, they just, I just, I'd stand them down most often. And I, I just get tired of bullies. 
and I get tired of, I just had this, as the same with putting my life between the baby butchers and the babies, little babies. I just, you know, God is not going to continue this, this, this society, this, this, this debt driven, um, sexual revolution that's just devouring everything. He's not going to stand by this nation is not long for, for increasing dramatic judgment. And I, and I just, I said, to the extent that you give me the resources, the ability, Lord, show me how to step in between these bullies and these little people. And, um, so that's, that's my, that's my driving motive. And, And when you have senior citizens and fixed income people and, Small farmers and small businesses come up to you with tears running down their cheek, their face, and say, "I never thought we could ever do this. I never thought there'd be someone like this." You know, I just, I look at how much there is, uh, the the waiting for Christians to lead in, and and uh, how much the cause of Christ could go forward if we would just set aside our own, our own material desires and wants and gains and and engage the system. Uh, so I. Well, that said, Josh, I don't remember exactly the nature of your question, but that—that's my—that's my motive. That's what—that's what presses me on. And then, I guess what I guess what adds to my success, I guess you could say, is that I've learned. I used to be, you know, like I said, I, I used to, uh, I, I used to be a bank analyst. I used to own a part of a bank. And then I worked back in the troubled '80s uh, throughout the Upper Midwest, dealing with troubled banks and failing banks and picking through the carcass of failed banks. And I got to know how corrupt the comptroller, the FDIC, the state banking departments, how the whole entire government regulatory system of our money system is, is just is just evil. In fact, I sat across the desk one time from a, a chief field examiner for the FDIC examination team, and I said, I we're looking over the same examination. He issued their preliminary report. I said, you know, they ought to rename you guys the Poor Bank Management Protection Company because that's really what you do. You're not doing an honest assessment of any of this stuff. And uh, uh, so I saw... I saw the corruption of the money system from within, and I saw it take families and just bury them in debts. And I saw the tension grow in the marriages and the families and so forth. And 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 I, I watched all this, and I said – I was given a lot of skill uh, financially at that time how to analyze things and see where they're going. And and I could pick out uh, – if we're looking at a bank that was in trouble that maybe was up for sale, I'd lead a team of two or three other guys come in with me, and we, we'd go analyze the bank and – Later, the president of the bank would say, nobody caught the, un, the, the hidden liabilities like your team did. He'd tell my shareholders I was working for. And I just had this sense that, that I, I don't believe that man by nature is good. The Bible tells me that man by nature, myself included, is created uh, evil. And that through the regeneration of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can become redeemed. But when I look at things and people want to make me all kinds of promises that they're going to do this and this and this with their money and their debts and their property and so forth – I start off with, well, until I, you've earned uh, the, res, the respect that you're a redeemed sinner and that you're faithful to your word and so forth. And when you do, you start to trust them more as a banker, as a lender. But uh, when I'm initially looking, I assume that, that a man is evil by nature. And if this is not a regenerate Christian or he's a totally compromised Christian, um, I will look hard and I will, look, I will not assume the, the, the best light. That serves me well when I look at government um, um, financial reports now. I can find a lot of things real fast uh, that, that takes a lot of other people a long time, but, but I was trained in it. I, I know what to look for as well. So I, I'm, I've been given a gift to, to analyze and, and to, to look carefully and see it. And then, and then also through a lot of my help from my wife, who was the journalist, uh, we've learned how to communicate these things simply to, to voters. Paul, how old are you? Sixty. <laughs> two. I try to decide which of the two questions I want to ask you. So you tell me more when you came out of banking. Um, tell me more about wh- why, because because I have a tremendous uh, and the the reason. So you know, it's I have a tremendous challenge. Many of my listeners are involved in finance, and finance is so fraught with ethical dilemmas, uh, and it's very challenging to know the proper course through the, the maze. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story and, and the decisions that you made when confronting ethical dilemmas. Uh, I went in with a, with a real zeal and a desire as a Christian young man trained in this area to try to bring reform and righteousness and, and justice into, into the money system. 
And I fought zealously for several years, two, three, four years into my start of my career. The old gentleman who owned the bank I was working for came and said, I'd like to sell you half the bank. And uh, we ended up doing that. Uh, we set up a holding company and so forth. And I liked working in small town Iowa because the ethics were rather clear and you could you could do these things. But the more I worked with the government system, I began to see what was the bigger problem. In time, he decided to retire and I had another partner and we decided not to stay together. So I sold my portion out and then formed a, um, um, a corporation to go out and offer consulting services. This was in the very troubled 80s. I got into a lot of banks in three or four states here in the upper Midwest. And the one thing I saw over and over and over again was the regulators are just lying to everybody. They're looking at black and calling it white. And that's when I began to look at the larger system. And I knew that I, I, was, I was pushing for, for reforms. I was publishing things in banking journals and so forth. I was, I was calling for um, uh, talking to the state banking department. So you guys got to start doing this and this and this. And uh, I began to see in time that they had no – the system had no interest. And then I, I – I, that's when I began to study Austrian economics. I knew a little bit about what was out there, but then I started delving deeper into it. And I, that's when I began to fully understand the whole, the whole central banking fiat money system. And in a matter, of, a matter of a few more years, I realized that the rules of the system are set up to basically enslave the public – and the Christian families into a servitude that would take away their liberty, their freedom, their righteousness, their inability to stand up. I saw it real time. I saw Christian families start to do things that they knew were wrong to keep the banker happy and um, compromise in, in, in various areas because I got to make – I want the I want the new piece of equipment for my business. I want the, the new set of – the, the, the banker appease their vanity instead of dealing with it, instead of questioning, helping them see through it. You don't need to do this now and, and pay the, keep paying this down for a few more years and get, get ahead of it. I said one of the first jobs I got after I left this local community was, was I was working for Norwest. It's long ago sold out to Wells Fargo, but they're a upper Midwest banking chain. And I sat in a, in a, a lending conference room of a bunch of lenders from around the whole region came in. We sat around a board table and they're talking about – the, the auto portfolio uh, for, for all the banks in the Norwest system in southern Minnesota. And they were talking about, you know, the average age of the loan is this, of the car is this long and so forth. And I remember sitting there saying, we just got these people through their mostly paying interest. They're just starting into principal. Why don't we let them go a while? Why don't we let these people, they're talking about getting out and pushing them to get a new car, a new vehicle, you know, that sort of thing. And this is back in the 80s. It's just all routine stuff now. It's just blown way past that. But I sat there and said, these families can have a little have a little um, breathing room. Let's if the vehicle's working fine, let's let them get into into principal and get ahead on some equity and so forth. And the whole room looked at me and said, "What business are you in?" And I said, "I'm not in the business of, of just destroying families, just so we can have a higher interest margin and so forth." Uh, and and um, I, I knew I, I I knew soon thereafter that the nature of our fiat system is designed to enslave the population. Uh, and, and, um, and what hurt me worse is that the, the propaganda behind it all appeals to even Christian families to start living beyond their means and the vanity and the, and the temptations and all the stuff that's pushed upon them. As I was starting to try to show this to, to Christian families, they would, they would kind of humor me for a while. Then someone just leave and take their account somewhere else. They go to another bank where they could get the big loan. And, and, um, uh, there was still always a base in the agricultural rural areas. There's always a base of the old school people who aren't going to get fooled like that. Uh, but um, a large growing number of, of the younger ones um, have and, and do. And so I, I can't answer your question with real clear answers other than uh, do all you can to stay out of debt. And um, if you get into debt, uh, double down on making the payments as fast and as hard as you can. And then go for a few years or a season where you're, where you're just debt free. Get used to the freedom that comes with that. And then if you want to look at another asset, something for your business or your house, your family needs something and you don't have the savings and you need to borrow something, do it on reasonable terms and and uh, and get into no long-term debts and pay your stuff off. Um, but the ethical dilemmas with the fiat money system, you know, fiat money is fundamentally 
alters the price, you know, the, the supply of, of of money. It fundamentally offers the price, alters the pricing of money. That is the interest rate, and fiat money fundamentally off, uh, alters the demand for money. And so we have we have a, f- a fictitious economy that's just that's just falling around the flow of of Federal Reserve money wherever it's wherever it's pouring into something, and um, this is not sustainable. And so. So go ahead. We've got about seven minutes here, so I just want to ask a couple of quick questions. Um, more yep. to, uh, I think we've done a good job on the political consulting thing, and uh, a couple of personal questions. How on earth did you afford to have eleven children? One of the um, blessings that I talked about with my wife is that she agreed that if we had to live a meager lifestyle for a long time, that we would do that. And so I've lived in an old home. And uh, a lot of uh, sewn clothing and hand-me-downs, and um, uh, we just lived a very, very meager lifestyle. Did a lot, a lot of things. A lot of families have uh, the, the normal families have old vehicles, uh, this sort of thing. And um, uh, along the for a long time, we didn't even have we didn't even have medical insurance of any kind. And then the last five years or so, we've we've gotten involved with Samaritan Ministries, and that's been a real blessing. I don't know if you know aware of Samaritan Ministries. Yeah, but I'm a member. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but um, so, and I, I, I purposely lived in a small town in Iowa to leave my let our kids grow up in an agricultural culture. They could work on farms. They could work for friends of mine. They could go hunting and fishing. The boys could be boys. The girls could be girls. And the cost of living was way less than any place else. So it was it was all by design and 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 uh, forethought that that. We we uh, we just sat down 25 years ago and said we need to prepare our children for a day that many don't see coming, but they're going to need to be, they're going to need to lead. And right now our our two oldest sons, our kids, all of our kids are leading in some capacity wherever they're called to. But the highest profile ones uh, right now are in the in the political Second Amendment arena, and they are extremely successful at it. And they were the ones behind the entire Missouri uh, law that got passed. It's wonderful. Uh, and it's once after we got connected and I looked at the, the picture that you have on your Facebook header uh, of your cover photo of your entire family. I mean, just pictures like that. I look at that and and uh, it's very inspirational to me as a young father. It's similar to even what my own, uh, you know, I'm the youngest of seven kids and um, 12 grandkids. My, my parents have 12 grandkids and we have a similar photo. And photos like that have always gripped me because when you think about the power and the wealth that is in people, uh, it can, in my mind, I'll trade in. I'll trade in any day. I'll trade in a fat retirement account uh, for um, a table filled with with children and grandchildren. I amen. And I tell people over and over: go back to Exodus one, reread Exodus one. When the oppression was on uh, God's people, and and Pharaoh was increasing the burdens and the taxes. I think one of the Hebrews word does one of the burdens is taxes. When all the oppression is on, what do God's people do? They go back home and have more babies, <laughs> and eventually they, they took all the wealth from the Egyptians. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, I, I say to Christians, you say, "Oh, I can't afford this," and blah 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 blah. I said, "And you're going to die with the whole system. You're, you're going to have no heritage, no future, no nothing." What did God's people do in the times of great oppression? Look at Exodus one, everybody. It's there for us. <laughs> so last. And, uh, and, Last question, uh, just because I know we're short on time. Last question I want to ask you here is on politics. And the question is, is it worth it? I live in West Palm Beach, Florida. And Palm Beach County, Florida is massive. It is – it's just huge. And yep. when, you, when you start looking at the waste, I mean, it's like where do you stop? And then it's also incredibly liberal. Uh, it's incredibly uh, entrenched politically. And it's exactly – it's a farm system uh, just like you described where the mayor moves on to become the congressperson. And it's just – and then being here in the seat – I mean Donald Trump lives in Palm Beach for crying out loud or, or theoretically does. So yep. when I look at it, it's tough for me to believe that I could make an impact there. Do you, do you think that I – mean, I mean what would you say to somebody like me? Would you say yes, good dig in no matter where you are? I mean it, these people are making a difference in Illinois. Uh, or do you say go somewhere else where you can actually make a difference, gather your forces, and get some small wins? How would you approach such a problem? Uh, Sam Walton started off in the hinterlands of Arkansas before he he, he went in national and so forth. So cutting your teeth, it may be better in a small area. But um, I can tell you that 
in, in what you just described, there's still large numbers of people who've given up, who are apathetic and are just bearing their their burden over their shoulder, just, just trudging through carrying this system. They're out there and they can vote. Uh, and so um, uh, t- picking a fight with this system on terms that they've never run into before, that they've never – They've never seen anything like this before. That, that's part of the fun of what we do is I fight them on their terms and we go back at them in a way that they, they're, they're, not, they're not used to. They don't know what to do. And, and so I'm saying the answer is both. You may want to go into a small area and, and start there and learn it. But I've done some on the east side of St. Louis, a $1.2 billion proposal, and we kicked its tail. Uh, and so, I mean, it, it can be done. And um, I, I would first start by assessing – the various government jurisdictions and where they're at, and then wait for the opportunity to, to engage the fight. And you, you'd be surprised with, with, and with Facebook now and stuff. I got people going, I could go on all day here. I got people going now. I've trained them to do this. They're going to big city, city council meetings and they're taking, a, you know, and the, when, during public hearing time, then we're not going to have a, a dialogue or discussion. You can just public comment, present your comments. We'll take them into consideration and go from there. They'll find somebody on the board that agrees with them. They're all alone on that board. Everybody else is going against them. They'll go and ask questions of, of the board of some outrageous tax or cost or something that's out of control. They'll summarize it, then they'll say, how many of you here are willing to, to cut this program back or cut this tax back or, or deal with this unfunded pension fund by not sticking it to the taxpayers but asking the city employees to take a cut? If you're willing to do this, whatever the question is, they make it a narrow question. If you're willing to do this, we know you can't speak back to us, but at least at this time, raise your hand high. And they'll have one, one of the council members raise their hand, and their camera pans. And the rest of them are looking down, eating their notes. And in one, one uh, community in, in uh, South Carolina, they tabled the meeting for a bathroom stop, and three of the council members came down and said, what are you going to do with that video? Oh, you'll see. It turns out my cameraman was so was so nervous, he, he blew it. He didn't have the camera oh, running. Oh, no. Uh, but uh, there's all kinds of videos and stuff we can start doing now and, and post it on Facebook and for, for 50 bucks, boost it into the county and watch the fun begin. So, I mean, there's, there's uh, I'm training people on a lot of these sort of things now that we can do that are there. So the answer is both. You know, you have to make your own assessment of where you're at. Well, the good thing about being in a big city, if you talk about um – uh, homeschool students, you go to a rural t- town and you you might have dozens or potentially hundreds. Here where I live, I have thousands, I would say tens of thousands. You talk about retirees and mobilizing uh, the army of retirees. You go to a rural community, you might have hundreds, perhaps thousands. I've got hundreds of thousands. So That's your market. You just identify them, homeschool kids and retirees. They're the ones that, that, that will will be the, 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 the boots in the ground. The problem is our homeschool leadership has not trained their parents right. There's so much more these homeschool kids could be doing. And, and, and I've seen it when they, when they engage, it is powerful. And they're sitting on the sidelines in most cases. Oh, they're getting involved in state politics and you know, that sort of thing. But local level and, and street, uh, boots on the street, they're not doing it. Yeah. And also retirees too. I mean, it's, it's, I, I can't stand how uh, we put people out to pasture right when they're in the prime of their lives. And, and I just saw a story uh, this last week. Uh, of a man in Orlando who is an older man uh, who goes out to the local abortion mill every day and he does sidewalk counseling and he I think the the, the story was that he'd saved uh, over four hundred over four hundred children yes. uh, over yes. the over the years that he's doing yes. that I just get I can't stand seeing people sit on the sidelines and and waste their lives. Um, Where did retirement come from in the 1950s? The insurance industry. <laughs> there was never such a thing before this. You diminished in your capacities, but you were called to your calling. And you and you stayed at it with your diminishing capacities as you got older until you were too ill. But the whole idea of parking your life at sixty-five is unbiblical, yeah. and, it, and it came from the money boys again. Yep. Uh, so, so anyway, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and seniors can go to these meetings. They can run video cameras. Uh, they get some training. I got, we got, we're, uh, I got stories I could sit here for two hours. But we're now starting to overhaul the county government here. Uh, in Iowa, because of because of one senior citizen running the video camera, she brings me the raw footage, and I make the political videos, and we turn them on into the county, and people are angry. And when they see the corruption, because they listen to the paper and the radio station all for decades, and they think this everything's business as usual. When they see the corruption on video on Facebook in their local city council, 
or county commissioners or whatever it is, all of a sudden they realize that the system has been lying to them and they get angry. So there's, there's a lot you can do. Yeah, and we live in a wonderful time for being able to do that stuff. So awesome. Well, Paul, I know you you're, um, uh, you got to go, and I'm up on my next interview. Tell us uh, your website is rollbacklocalgov.com. Any other websites or other uh, action steps, perhaps anyone in my audience would like to hire you uh, for your consulting services, uh, what would be the next uh, What would be the next follow-up uh, that you'd like people to um, make? They, they, they can email me at ccs at iowatelecom.net. That's ccs at iowatelecom.net. But go to rollbacklocalgov and spend some time there. A lot of my clients say, I learned so much on how to fight by just reading all the articles and following your links and so forth. So spend some time there first. And then if they have more direct questions, there's a contact form on there, or they can just email me directly at ccs at iowatelecom.net. I got, a, I got a lot of links that can help them uh, nationally uh, on, on how they can prepare themselves. Paul, thanks for coming on and keep fighting the fight. We all want lower taxes, and I'm glad to see that some people are actually doing something about it. <laughs> glad to be on with you, Joshua. God bless. Oops.